0: As we begin this morning, I want us to think of the experience of looking forward to something, anticipating something, something exciting, something important, something big. So kids, you'll remember the experience of looking forward to Christmas. You know that feeling you have like you just can't wait till it gets here? Or maybe it's a summer vacation, a a place that you know your family is going to go. And so you're really looking forward, to the days and the weeks leading up to that vacation. You're really amped up and you can't wait to get there. Or maybe you remember the days leading up to your wedding, the days or the weeks leading up to the birth of one of your children. Something big is about to happen. Something Exciting is coming, something in some cases that's life changing. The text that Rose just read for us describes the first day in the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. What must the experience have been like for God the Father, for God the Son? for God the Spirit to anticipate this week, right? This is the week that the whole Bible before this points forward to. This is the week that when we read through the rest of our Bibles, it refers us back to. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, this week and the events that culminate this week in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to be what we celebrate for all of eternity. This is an important week. This is the most important week in all of human history, culminating in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. This is an important week, and every day of this week is packed with significance. In keeping with his aim, we're diving in now into the final chapters of Matthew. But Matthew's been writing, and his aim all along has been to point to Jesus and to show Jesus to be the long-awaited, the long-anticipated Messiah. But just as in John's gospel that we're going through, Matthew's aim is not just to give us information. (laughs) He's not just seeking to inform. Matthew is writing to persuade. Matthew's writing to persuade all of his readers to believe in this Jesus, to follow this Jesus, to let nothing hinder us. In fact, to give this Jesus our total allegiance. And so a good question we should be asking with that aim in view is how does Palm Sunday... How does this passage here fit into Matthew's total scheme of things? What's he trying to do, and why does this passage function in the way that it does? Well, a good question to ask when you're talking in terms of total allegiance, that's a strong claim. Jesus wants total allegiance. Matthew is persuading us to give our total allegiance to Jesus. Well, when you talk in those terms, an obvious question is, Arises. It has to be asked. And it's being asked here. Look ahead to verse 23. If you have your Bibles, look to Matthew 21, 23. And when he entered, that's Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority... Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? In other words, Jesus, what gives you the right to come into Jerusalem and do the things that you're doing? Or more personally, Jesus, what gives you the right to come into my life and to claim total allegiance? That's the question that Palm Sunday wants to try to answer. That's what this text in verses 1 through 11, the first day of the last week of Jesus' life, that's the question that's being answered. Jesus is publicly revealing himself. Jesus is making himself known, mainly in two ways. He's making himself known as king, and he's making himself known as the Savior. King and Savior. Let's look at how this unfolds. First, Jesus is revealing himself as the king. Now, as they're drawing near to Jerusalem, this is important because in Matthew's gospel, this is actually the first time that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And so his entrance into Jerusalem is is hugely significant. This is an important time. It's Passover, and just like Isaac shared last week, Passover, the city's just brimming with people. It's like five to six times its size. There's all types of people here. And this is a time where the Jewish people are just, they're ripe with nationalism. They're thinking about their history as God's people and all that God did for them. And their anticipation of all that God will do for them, all that he's promised. Like, this was a time when emotions are high, expectations are high, tensions even are high. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, so he's actually to the east of Jerusalem and he's looking down. He can see the entire city of Jerusalem. He can see the temple. He, he sees it all from the Mount of Olives. And he's considering, how am I going to enter the city? How am I going to go down into this central place of Israelite religious life? He's not taking an Uber down there. Right? He's, not, he's not just ju- jumping in a, in a car and driving down there. He's considering, how am I going to get down into Jerusalem? We'll see why this is important. He decides that he's going to ride down on a colt. But don't miss verse 3. Remember this question of authority. Jesus sends his two disciples ahead and says, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. Now when Matthew uses that word, he's not just talking about a ruler or a master or even the owner of the animals, which Jesus wasn't. These were someone else's donkey and colt. He's talking specifically of Jesus as the Lord God Almighty. So whenever God asks to borrow something, the only right response is, it's all yours. Because literally, it is all his. Jesus has authority because the Lord Almighty is asking. We keep reading, why Why is this happening? Why is Jesus choosing to enter Jerusalem this way? In verse 4, Matthew tells us this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, specifically the prophet Zechariah. So catch this for a second. Think Jesus is looking out over the city, he's looking at Jerusalem, he's looking at the temple, and he's so self aware. He's so. Aware that this very moment in time, God is about to fulfill a promise that he made to his people 500 years ago. God promised his people 500 years ago, and now, right now, this is the time, my entering into Jerusalem, I'm going to bring to pass, I'm the one with authority to bring to pass the promise of God from over 500 years ago. Now, if you read Zechariah's prophecy, the time that it's written in is a time when Israel is being severely disciplined by God. God has brought in kings and nations, and they're trampling on Jerusalem, and they're oppressing God's people. It's then, that's when God says, I myself will come into Jerusalem. I will set up my king. And this king He's going to make peace, not in just in Jerusalem. He's going to bring peace to the entire nations. He's going to rule from sea to sea. He's going to be worldwide in his rule and his reign. This is not just the king of Israel. This is the king of the entire world. Now, in ancient times, kings would typically go about in one of two ways if they were riding around the town or the city, they were typically riding on a war horse. A king ready for battle. A king riding out to defend and to conquer. Or, they would ride on a docile animal like a donkey. That was to communicate to his people all is well. we living in a time of peace, let's celebrate and enjoy this time of peace together. Remember those two ways. That's how kings would get about. So here is Jesus in a time that he's aware that God's fulfilling this prophecy, riding on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. No regalia, no fine clothes, In the world's eyes, a very poor, a very unassuming man. But for those with eyes to see, the king of the world was entering Jerusalem that day. And the king was coming with terms of peace. I love that. In the movie Invictus, which recounts the story of Nelson Mandela... Morgan Freeman plays the role of Nelson Mandela. And Morgan Freeman comes into office. He becomes the new president. This is the time of apartheid. This is the time after decades pass with Nelson Mandela in prison, being harshly treated. He comes into power. He's the new president of South Africa. Political tensions are high. (laughs) An old regime is moving out, a new regi- regime is moving in. Now, in, in the movie, there's a scene. It's the first day that Mandela takes office. So it's the first day the president comes to work. And he starts to see all of the employees packing up their boxes and leaving. So immediately he calls for an all-staff meeting. And two guys, two white guys who are watching Mandela walk to the meeting, say to him. they whisper to one another, Oh, great. He just wants the satisfaction of firing all of us himself in person. That's why he's calling this meeting. So Mandela gets everybody in the office, everybody in the conference room, and this is what he says. He says, I couldn't help noticing all the empty boxes and the packing that's going on. Now, if you want to leave, that's your right. And if you feel in your heart that you cannot work for your new government, you should go, and you should go now. But then he says this. If you're packing up because you fear that your language or the color of your skin or who you worked for before disqualifies you from working here, I'm here to tell you, have no such fear. The past is the past, and we need your help. In fact, we want your help. If you would stay, you would be doing your country a great service. Brilliant leadership. He's coming with terms of peace. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what his riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was, friends. It was the king of the world riding into Jerusalem, riding into the holy city, saying to his people, I'm here not to make war. I'm here for peace. And so the question becomes, in the same way that Jesus rode into Jerusalem many centuries ago, he's riding this morning into the cities of our hearts. He's riding this morning into the cities of our lives. And the question becomes, what kind of reception are we giving him? What's the reception when King Jesus comes to assert his loving and his merciful authority, when he comes to us with terms of peace, when he's holding out his hand saying, I want to have peace with you. What kind of reception does he receive? Now, our lives are not unlike the Jerusalem that Jesus came into. They're not. In many ways, they're very similar. Jerusalem, at this time especially, was very, very crowded, distracted, busy. In fact, the one place where people could go to worship God and to pray and to get some peace and quiet was so hustling and bustling with people making money and getting ahead, sometimes at the advantage of others. Like it was so distracting and crowded. Jerusalem was filled with people who were hurting. There were the lonely there. Sick people were there. Crippled people were there. People that were poor. People that were rich. People that were so disillusioned with religion. Like I'm out on the church stuff people that were confused, people that were hopeless, people that were overwhelmed by life. No, Jerusalem didn't have podcasts and social media, but it too had lots of voices, authoritative voices, voices who claimed to be experts when meanwhile the true word of God was completely neglected. It's into this Jerusalem That Jesus comes and he says, I'm not here to make war. I'm here with arm outstretched. I want to make peace. That's how he comes to us. Church, when I think about that, when I think about Jesus coming to us with his loving authority, with his desire to make peace with everyone, with his desire to establish peace in our lives, that's good news. That's good news to me. I want that kind of peace. In fact, it's the peace I'm so often wrestling and trying to find in all these other places. We can relate to this, right? We, we want stability in our lives. We want rest. There's things that stress us out. There's things that are the, on the outside of our lives. There's things on the inside of our lives, ways that we feel, ways that we think. There's all types of stuff that causes us to be at a lack of peace, What if instead of turning to all these other places hoping to find just some peace and some stability, we began to turn more and more to Jesus? We began to seek him and to try to pray and and read his word to find the actual peace that he came to offer to us. There are so many relationships right now that are fractured and strained. We're wondering, in some cases, how in the world are these relationships going to be mended? What if instead of talking over and over and over again about what divides us, we found ourselves turning over and over and over again to Jesus? Is one of the reasons why we have fractured relationships in this church and so many churches around the country right now Because we're really not surrendered to the Prince of Peace. See, Jesus comes to give us more than just a feeling. Peace is not a feeling. Jesus came because there was war between us and God. Jesus came to lay down his life, to die the death we deserve to die, to rise again so that there wouldn't be war anymore between us and God. There would be peace. But that's not where peace stops. Peace then goes horizontal. Jesus came to establish peace between us and God and peace with us and one another. That's what it means to call him the Prince of Peace. As we surrender to him, we have peace with one another. Many of us right now are struggling with the events and the issues swirling around our country, and I get it. Don't forget the Christians to whom Matthew was writing. These were Christians for whom the world was anything but peaceful. These were Christians living in the day of the crucifixion. These were the days where Rome says, look at the cross. Look at this crucifixion. This is reserved for any who would dare defy Rome's authority. Any takers? but our early brothers and sisters they looked to the cross and saw something completely different that's where my king died That's where my king suffered in my place. That's where my king rose again. That's where my king conquered my sin. That's where king conquered my oppression. That's where king set me completely free, not just from Rome, but from anything that would hinder me and shackle me from knowing and loving God Almighty. That is the tool of my freedom. See, Jesus offers us true peace, not because he tells us that everything in life is going to go the way that we think it should go. He tells us we can have peace because we're actually living part of a kingdom that's not of this world. It's a peace that transcends this life. It's a peace that transcends everything going the way that we think it should go. It's a peace that descends upon us because we know that our king is returning. Remember the two ways that kings rode. Jesus came once riding humbly on a donkey's colt. Friends, he's not coming that way again. John tells us in Revelation how Jesus is coming. Revelation 19 says this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, a war horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself." And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, this is the king that comes to us today, riding into the cities of our lives, into the cities of our hearts and says, I'm here for peace. Take it. No true peace. To reject it, is to do so at your eternal peril. Why does Jesus have the right to do what he's doing here? He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he's inviting us to live under his loving authority. He's coming to assert his loving, merciful authority in our lives. And as we surrender to him, we know True peace. So Matthew is persuading us. He's calling us to give our allegiance to Jesus. Why? Because he's the king. He's the king. Secondly, Matthew shows us that Jesus is the Savior. He's a king, and he's the Savior. Now, the initial response from the crowd is hopeful, Right? They begin to place their cloaks on the colt. They begin to place their cloaks on the road. All signs of honor and showing Jesus praise. Right? They, they get these branches. This is where we get Palm Sunday from. Right? These are presumably palm branches that they're laying down before Jesus as he's riding into the city. That's a way of showing him honor. They've heard enough of Jesus preaching. Even though this is the first time he's coming into Jerusalem, the crowds have heard enough of Jesus preaching. They've they've heard enough stories. They've heard of his miracles. So much so that they feel quite comfortable quoting their Bibles from Psalm 118 and saying, Jesus, Messiah, save us. They're quoting Psalm 118, which is a song of deliverance. And so essentially, what they're doing is they're using their Bibles to say, okay, Jesus, in the same way from Psalm 119 that God came, the king came and put down all of Israel's enemies, come now. You're coming into Jerusalem and we're coming with you. We're going to put down Rome. Let's do this. Hosanna, save us. That's what it literally means. Save us, save now. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord who's going to come and conquer Rome for us. Let's do this. Let's do it, Jesus. We're ready. We're with you. Now, they're not wrong. They're actually using their Bibles accurately. But they didn't fully comprehend the type of saving that Jesus came to do. They wanted all Jewish people to be saved the power of Rome. God wanted all people to be saved from the power of sin. Think of it this way. Let's say I go to the doctor because I've got this aching tooth and it's just been bothering me over and over. So I finally go to see my doctor and he does all the x-rays and the blood work and the testings and all that. And he says, yeah, it's true. You do need a root canal, But he also finds that I've got mouth cancer, and it's terminal. So what if in doing, and this doctor so happens to be an expert in this type of cancer, and he's got the cure, let's say. But if he goes into my mouth, and he only does the root canal, and he never tells me about the cancer, he never deals with the cancer, he never addresses the cancer that's killing me, what kind of a doctor would he be? A bad one. I don't want those kind of doctors. That's not the kind of savior that Jesus is. He didn't just come to make one people group's political lives a little less painful. He came to deal with a terminal cancer of sin that's killing people and sending us all to hell. See, we're living, friends, in a time when identity groups and finding our tribe is hugely important to us right now. And we might feel comfortable and like and find some satisfaction in placing ourselves in all these different categories. But when it comes to Jesus and the Savior he is and the saving that he came to do, the Bible only knows one category. There's only one group of people that Jesus came for. Sinners. The Bible says that all of us are in our father, Adam. We're all part of the same human race. And we all have the same fundamental human problem. We're all alike sinners. We all in some way, like Adam, have said to God, even though you're the creator and sustainer of all things, no thanks. I'll take things from here. I'll do things my way. We've rejected God. We've all failed to live up to the moral standards that God has for us. And so we all sinners deserve God's just punishment, his fair punishment for our sin. But what does Jesus do? Jesus, the one sent with all the authority from heaven, he comes into the world, he takes on the flesh of Adam's race. He goes to the cross. He suffers and dies the punishment that all in Adam deserve to die. And then he rises again. And what does he tell his disciples at the end of Matthew? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go with this good news. Go tell the whole world this good news. You don't have to be in Adam anymore. You don't have to face Adam's punishment. You can now actually exit Adam and come into Christ. That's the Savior that Jesus came to be. He has all authority in heaven and on earth to be the Savior of the entire world, every single tribe and people group, because we're all alike sinners who need saving through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why he has the authority to do what he's doing. You see, the Jews in Jerusalem were ready to settle for a Savior of their own making. They wanted a Jesus who thought like they thought. They wanted a Jesus who was on their side and against everybody else. Friends, be careful that you're not making Jesus the Savior in your own image. Vicki and I, for our 10th anniversary years ago, went and backpacked in Yosemite. And when we came back, we had this postcard of Yosemite on our fridge. And whenever we'd open the fridge, we'd see it and remember our time there. And it was, it was great. But slowly, you know how it is, over time, memories fade. But one thing I will never forget, one thing that has not faded from my memory, was the experience of summiting Half Dome and standing on the cliff and looking thousands of feet down to the ground. It just It literally takes your breath away. I fear for us, church. I fear for myself because we settle for postcard Jesus. The real Jesus, if we'll have faith and hearts with the eyes of faith to see, he's a Jesus that takes our breath away. He's a savior of the world. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And if we're too comfortable with a Jesus that we make in our image, with postcard Jesus, we may not even be Christians. Postcard Jesus is not who Matthew's persuading us to give our total allegiance to. There's something vastly different from looking at a postcard of Half Dome and standing on the summit with your breath taken away. I want that. I want that for myself, and I want that for you. I don't want an emotional experience. That's not what I'm talking about. I want a reverence and an awe and a a type of heart mindset that says, Jesus, I fail all the time at this, but you have my total allegiance because you're worthy of it. You loved me. You gave yourself for me. You're coming again, and I want to live now in light of that day. That church is what Matthew is trying to get us to do. And the beauty of this is, we might think that the fear of the Lord, living in the fear of the Lord is some terrifying experience. The Bible actually says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Which means that nobody is as committed to your joy and your peace and the abundant life than Jesus is. No one's as committed to this as He is. Human flourishing happens when we surrender ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's when life, that's when we become truly human beings. When we're surrendered to the one who's fully committed, so much so that he died and rose again to allow our lives to be all that he means for them to be. He came to give us abundant life. Which simply means for us tomorrow morning that we get up and we simply say again, Jesus, it's a new day. You're the king, you have peace. You're the Savior. I need deliverance. Fill me with your spirit. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. I need you. That daily surrender, friends, that moment-by-moment surrender, that's what we're called to do. That's how we become the people that God has made us to be. I'll have Isaac and the band return. Look at how Matthew concludes this story. He puts a question into the mouths of the crowds in Jerusalem. Verse 10. Who is this? Who is this? Not what's his name, but who is the type of person that can cause this much of a stir in the city today? I wonder if we move through Holy Week as we head toward Good Friday, as we head toward Easter Sunday. I wonder if we would ask ourselves that same question Who is this? Like, who really is this? And my prayer is that we would see yes, he is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, but he's so much more. He's the king. He's the Savior of the world. He's the one in whom we find true peace. In him, we find deliverance. And he's worthy of our praise and our daily surrender as he exerts his loving, merciful authority in each one of our lives. So let's, let's end our service now, not even with the praises of these people, because our understanding of this Jesus is so much more expanded. Let's stand and let's sing to our King. Let's sing to our great Savior who has delivered us and caused us to know his peace. Amen.